Hello, and welcome to Watch Party, Lord of the Rings, where we look at Tolkien through the lens of adaptation. I'm Michael. And I'm Jen. And this is your episode seven hot takes discussion. And uh, we haven't had a chance to talk about this at all, Jen. You know, usually we do a little bit of pre-show jibber-jabber, and I get a sense of where you're at. We text each other. But Michael, uh, we, we haven't communicated at all. Michael, I'm going to let you in on a little secret, and it hurts to do this, but now I'm going to burst your bubble. The reason that I haven't reached out is because that you texted me, oh my gosh, this was the best episode by far. Uh-huh. And I feel the opposite of that. Oh, I was, and I, I was wondering. I don't really like bursting people's bubbles. Like I take no pleasure in it. It's not fun for me. So... That's why I didn't respond <laughs> to well, your text message. You're bursting so my all, bubble on the air. This is the bubble I'm gonna bursting. Burst, instead, I'm gonna, instead, I'm going <laughs> to let you down gently oh, on the man. air live. <laughs> well, I thought there might be a chance of that just because, you know, when I got up, I, I, I get on Twitter and just, you know, I'm seeing people's reactions and they're all over the map. You know, some people shared my appreciation for the episode. Um, and a lot, but plenty of people didn't. Some people were saying this is the worst episode or like among the worst episodes. And I, so it's all over. And so I was really curious where you landed. I did not enjoy this episode, but there were things about it that I definitely enjoyed. As with every episode, there were some great, great moments. You know, again, we got Charlotte Brandstrom who directed this episode. I love her. I think mm-hmm. she has such an artistic aesthetic um sensibility about the way that she shoots things and some really really beautiful moments beautiful cinematography and some of the scenes were great so we'll we'll, you know we'll get into it um overall yeah not my favorite so at a high level you know and we'll get into the details but just generally speaking why didn't you like it um i think i was really put off by how things went down with durin durin and elrond um, a lot of that did not work for me and I did not enjoy the dialogue. It, well, I enjoyed some of the dialogue. So I love the dialogue between Durin and his father, Durin and Durin. Um, yeah, I thought those scenes were really captivating and powerful. And Owen Arthur is absolutely such a powerhouse. He's so passionate in his delivery. I think he's yeah. great. Um, so those, that dialogue really worked for me. And obviously, you know, Elrond, what a great character, what a great actor, all that's good, but um, the the dialogue between Disa and Durin, I did not enjoy, and I just didn't enjoy how the plot unfolded. So I didn't understand why he he decided to go rogue and we're gonna mine it ourselves. That just didn't feel believable to me. Um, like you think he would have followed his, his king's orders and not? You didn't, you didn't believe he, that he would uh, violate the king's orders in order to save his friend. I mean, maybe he would, but I don't think he would just do it solo. If it's that dangerous to mine, I don't think he would be stupid enough to do it alone. And well, then... there's a little bit of that throughout this entire show. Like, we're not... Yeah. Like, all the stuff that's going on actually requires, like, teams of people. So, but they're just, they just do away with that. So it's like Durin and Elrond alone in the chamber doing all the mining themselves. And there's, like, other examples I... of that throughout, like, all yeah, the episodes. Yeah, well, I think just for this... I... Okay, so I think the believability factor was a huge issue for me for this whole episode. So, like, we're supposed to, number one, okay, all these people survived this massive eruption. Like, You just got to put first... that out of your head. <laughs> I know, gotta... I know. So you just, like, suspend belief because we're talking about a fictional world and fantasy. But that that kind of stuck in my craw just to the get-go. I was like, you know, oh, there was a massive eruption and they all survived. Okay, like, put that aside. But then also... 
the scenes with the Harfoots um, and the stranger. I normally really enjoy those scenes, but I thought that it was so hasty of them to cast off the stranger, even though it was so apparent that it was an accident that the branch fell on the little girl. Um, and I didn't like that. But they, they didn't sent- end up fully casting him off. They go after him. I, I mean, they, yeah, but it bothered me that they did initially. And there were just like such broad swings, huge like swings and change of change of course and mm-hmm. course correcting. It just, it, for some reason, it just wasn't jiving for me this time. But, you know, I don't want to get too negative and hate all over it because there were also some really lovely wonderful moments and one one of the things i really loved about this episode was galadriel and theo yeah so it was the galadriel that i guess i've always envisioned in this episode and i really like that they used theo the character of theo to bring out that softer side of her Mm -hmm. where she has those intimate moments of conversation about um about uh you know not letting not letting your mind go to dark places or i i not recalling the exact dialogue, but she was wise and she was, we saw a much kinder side of her. So I think you should feel free to get as negative as you feel because I, I'm going to fully balance you out because I am so high on this episode. We're going to be fully yin and yang. I know because it was dwarves. Yeah. No, yeah. no, it, not even just dwarves. I mean, because there was a lot of balance. There were, there was dwarves, plenty of dwarves. And those scenes were just incredible to me, but I liked the, the Harfoot scenes. I liked the stuff with Galadriel and Theo. I liked, uh, seeing Mordor and but the thing I really liked about this episode was okay we went back to having multiple storylines that we had to bounce mm-hmm. around but the storylines no longer felt disjointed things now felt connected and like the Durin Elrond storyline that is separate from what's going on in the Southlands but um, it didn't feel as abrupt like the transitions between plots felt way more natural um, so the, the just the editing and the beats maybe you know that's kudos to Charlotte Brandstrom I don't know I, you know, editing is a little is different than than directing, but um, things just flowed really well together to me, and the plots actually have legs now. Like hmm. the first several episodes, things have just felt disjointed, and you know, you're not. It takes time to get invested in characters and things like that. And now, like we're six episodes in, this is our seventh episode. I'm invested enough in what's going on that I actually care, mm-hmm. uh, like actually really care. Like in the first couple episodes. There are all these epic moments and I have epic in quotation marks because like the music is telling us it's epic and like the cinematography is telling us it's epic, but it's the first or second episode. I don't care about any of these characters yet. There's no stakes that, you know, they're telling me there are stakes like like Galadriel's monologue is literally telling me how significant all the stakes are. You haven't seen them. I don't feel the stakes because the show's just starting, right? So there's that kind of that kind of thing where they're trying to hit us with epic stuff right out of the gate. It's not landing for me. I liked it. Like I'm, I'm not, you know, go back and listen to our episodes on those, uh, our hot takes on those episodes. Like I liked them. There's a lot of stuff I did like, but um, I wasn't like really fully invested. So this episode, I thought like pacing was better. The plots actually have legs, and I care about like where the characters are going. I think um, the big strength of this episode is all the story beats are focused on, for the most part, one-on-one conversations with characters, and the dramatic tension is all. Um, based on on the relationships between the characters. Mm-hmm. And some people I saw on Twitter saying like, oh, this episode is slow. I think those people just wanted more action because there's no like action or fighting really in this episode. But I thought there was way more dramatic tension because there's way more character development. Like this wasn't just mm-hmm. a like a filler episode. 
major uh, dramatic transitions between for the characters were occurring. Um, you know, with the Harfoots, all their uh, all their uh, wagons getting destroyed. That's a huge oh, deal. That you know? part was so brutal. King Durin saying, "You're no longer my heir." Like a full on falling out between the Durins. Yeah. That's a lot huge. of drama. A lot of drama. So the real dramatic tension, and it occurred between characters. Um, and they, were, I thought those scenes. I'm just, I'm gonna have a very different opinion than you. I thought the scenes were brilliantly written. I thought that all the dialogue worked really well for me. Like it didn't have a lot of the issues that I'd had with. I have no complaints. Like we both had complaints about some of the dialogue in past episodes. All of it worked for me, and I thought they were like all the lines were very personal and believable but also touched on themes in a natural way. Whereas in some other episodes, I felt like, all right, there's great, like they're trying to touch on themes, but it's like trying a little too hard and it, it's not doing normal narrative work with the characters. None of that problem was present in this episode. I felt like all the dialogue was simultaneously about characters. It was very character driven and the relationship driven. And that's where the tension lay, but it was also hitting all those thematic buttons. So I don't. I just thought I it was agree. I mean, I agree. I love. Park. I loved like the intimate dialogue and like that characters got long monologues where they could really shine, really show their acting chops. Like mm-hmm. I appreciated that. I think there were just moments that I just couldn't shake. So one of them was I could not get over when Galadriel mentioned Celeborn, her husband. So Galadriel's married to someone named. Ah, uh, you're one of these. Go on, go on. And Celeborn's <laughs> dead. Uh, no, I don't think he's actually dead. Like, I don't think they would yeah. mention it if he was actually dead. There's 0% chance that he's actually dead. I don't think he's actually dead, but I just don't really like that he's going to be. I just wish he had been present from the beginning. I don't know. that, But I kept spiraling out about him. I was like, what's what's happening with Celeborn? Where is he? Is he really dead? Now, obviously, I don't think he's dead, and he's got to make an appearance in the show. Yeah, right. Sometime. Yeah. I think I, I think both just within the, the context of the show, there's just no way he's dead. It would be just like such a random reference um, to just drop it in there, but for no purpose if he was like legitimately dead. Um, also, I don't think from a rights perspective they would kill him off because we, but you know, this is very meta, but we learned early on that the Tolkien estate was like, if people are dead, they have to stay dead. If they're alive, they have to stay alive until they die in the story. It's like that was one of the sticking points that Christopher Tolkien said, you cannot screw with this. So they're not going to like kill off Celeborn when he is definitely present in the Third Age in the actual Lord of the Rings. Like they just will not do that. There's a there's zero percent chance he's actually dead, I think. Um, I, I do feel you on the. So I think it will be very interesting. They are setting up. We're jumping right into this. So let's let's tackle the Celeborn issue. Then let's circle back to the beginning and actually take this uh, show in order. But um, they're clearly setting up like a reunification uh, narrative in future seasons. Like mm-hmm. Celeborn's going to be rediscovered. They're going to th- there's going to be a reunion. It's going to be wonderful. We're going to see their love story, whatever that looks like. Is it a true love story? Is it kind of like uh, we're like really close pals type of love story? I don't, I don't know. Um, they're going to have a kid. That kid is going to fall in love with Elrond and, you know, uh, they're going to have Arwen and like, we're going to see, well, we won't see Arwen's birth, but like we will see Elrond uh, marry or at least hook up with, not hook up with, but connect with Galadriel's daughter. Like that will happen. And that's going to be a mm-hmm. future season. And I think that it's very interesting that um, they're plugging Celeborn into this. They're making it fit into this idea that Galadriel has like huge PTSD. She's lost everyone. She's dealing with grief and that's, what's driving her. And we knew about Finrod, and now actually Celeborn is part of that as well. 
Now, it is weird that we've heard all about Finrod, her brother. And nothing and na- about Caliborn until like, just now. Yeah. It's That contri- was kind yeah. of my... Mm-hmm. It just was like, on, wait, yeah. you're just now mentioning this? You're not as upset. She seems so much more upset about her brother than right, her husband. Right. And that does come off. Like we've heard over and over again about Finrod. Like that is the thing that's driving her. She didn't go back to Valinor because of this, you know, she, she picked up Finrod's torch and she's going to get vengeance for Finrod. And she's like, that- oh, by the way, my husband also never came back from battle. Anyways. Right, 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 right. right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Moving right along. So like it I- just seemed like not good writing to me. Person. Yeah, it they just yeah I I totally get that um, and I wonder what went into that like maybe they didn't want to if they're gonna make this choice with Celeborn that he went off and fought in the war and didn't come back, which you know didn't happen that's not lore consistent, but I'm not that mad about it because there's so much ambiguity about what was going on with Galadriel and Celeborn in the first age and and in the second age there's all these different versions there's all these gaps if they want to play with that I'm okay with it. um. So, but if they want to do that, the natural thing would have been to wrap that up, like in her opening monologue, talk about her yeah. losses. That's what's driving her. But like, then show it flipped. too, because they showed would... they showed Finrod in battle. Finrod, yeah. So that would have been that would have made the most sense from a writing perspective. Yeah, zooming out and getting a little meta, people would have freaked out from the first episode. People would have lost their minds and gotten so mad about Celeborn. People are dead already and... doing that. Who cares? I know. People already were, They're and they already, already were about Celeborn. They're like, where's Celeborn? Yeah. But okay. I, I, yeah. my hunch is that that's part of why they wrote it the way they did, where they didn't reveal it right away. They were trying to avoid that backlash. They wanted it to be. And like, you can't have too many big uh, reveals at the same time. So you have to space them out. So like, we'll do this one later. So I think that I'm guessing that's kind of why they decided to do it. It does end up feeling a little unnatural because then you start asking questions like, well, did she not really love Celeborn? Like, I guess she just didn't really care. Also, <laughs> also as a part of that, so one of the things that came to my mind, which I think is interesting, is Elvish Reincarnation. They haven't talked about it in the show. I don't know if Elvish Reincarnation exists in the show. My guess is they'll never touch on it and not confirm it. But we know that in the books, at least, a dead elf goes back to the halls of Mandos and after some period of time gets rehoused. So in theory, Celeborn is hanging out in Valinor right now, whether he's still in the House of Mandos, waiting Doesn't to be rehoused. Doesn't Glorfindel get? Glorfindel actually, I mean, so every, they all get rehoused, but Glorfindel actually gets sent back to Middle-earth. Yeah, sent back is what I meant, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So in theory, when Galadriel's getting on the ship to go back to Valinor, like she knows about this whole rehousing process. She hung out in Valinor with all the Valar. She knows about the Halls of Mandos. Um she knows that Celeborn is there. Like, if she believes that he's dead, she also then, therefore, believes that he's in Valinor somewhere. So when she's getting on that boat to go back to Valinor, she's thinking, I'm going to go see Celeborn. And then she gets off. So we already they already told us, all right, it's a huge sacrifice for her to not go to Valinor. And that, that is already communicated. But Celeborn being there and her, just, and her knowing that, like, I get to see Celeborn if I go back. That'll be part of my healing, you know, my reunification with my, my mate. Um, and she decides, I, I, I can't do that yet. I have to fulfill this, you know, basically an equivalent of an oath. Uh, that just makes that decision much more significant. We, now, yeah, that's, I wish not we an, in, that's, that's not in the show because they haven't, they haven't confirmed right. Elvish reincarnation yet. So, but I am just thinking about that. If they ever do establish that, like that, that'll be really interesting and, and make that choice that much more significant. Yeah, I think it would have been... I think it would have packed even more of a punch for us to, again, know the stakes of her not going back. Um, 
and all of all of that like what yeah her sacrifice and and um it's just a shame but yeah i'm sure more shall be revealed like people yeah. are people always get upset when they think something should go one way and then there's right. there's a lot to be revealed but the other thing the other aspect that i thought was really upsetting that i'll just jump right to while i'm on my gripes was <laughs> the mithril healing the leaf part Remember when, like, the, he puts the mithril next oh, yeah. to the leaf, and how the leaf, I, how like, I forget? <laughs> go, and the leaf suddenly recovers. I was like, "What?" So this, ah, what do I think now? I don't know. What did you make of that? So, okay, there's a couple things. First of all, you know, we went over this in episode five, and this is a gripe in episode five. But my kind of approach to this is like, if I don't like the direction they've taken in an episode and something is revealed and I don't like that direction. I can feel that and experience that, but okay, that is now the direction they're taking. So like Emma's trying to resign myself to their choices and then like enjoy that new plot branch. All right. So if the mithril plot line, the way they've done it, you know, if, if I don't like it and like all those choices up front, fine, but they're in that direction. So like the fact that mithril is healing the wounds, like that's just consistent with, what they've already told us kind of. So it, that didn't like jar me. Um, I do get that it kind of like in a way confirms what we were hoping was a lie. Like we were hoping that this whole myth was just a lie, that Mithra wouldn't have any such magical properties. And this event, all right, it confirms that there's magical properties. I'm not totally sold that that's the case. Um, and this is something the Tolkien professor brought up on his uh, Twitter spaces talk with, that's like officially sponsored by uh, Lord of the Rings on Prime, the, their Twitter account. Um, what it confirms is that Mithril has a magical curative effect over whatever rot has infected the linden tree. It is not yet confirmed whether or not that rot in the linden tree actually has any connection to the elves. Like, this is something that we all speculated about, that Sauron is hanging around in Region. He sort of, you know, planted the seeds, both of the idea that the elves are fading, but also, like, the literal rot that's affecting the tree. That that's actually him. And that he's kind of making them believe, like he 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 creates the rot, and then he's like, "Hey, look, this rot is is right. actually reflective of your of your uh, your internal fading." So that's all part of his scam. It's all and, totally possible that Sauron is still behind all this, and right. that it is still that he like yeah. designed the rot to actually be. Yeah, um, I mean, I hope so because that's the only way. That's the only way it works for me. You know, mm -hmm. does not work for me in any other scenario. Like if you know, if it if it uh, you know it again. If it is actually true that Mithril has curative properties, I mean, first of all, Mithril is like an amazing material within the universe of Lord of the Rings. We don't have this whole like myth, um, uh, this of the song of the roots of the Hithyglir. Like none of that is in the Lord of the Rings, and the connection to the Silmaril, like all that is is new. But Mithril is like a remarkable metal, and so yeah, you know, I I, I wouldn't love if it has this sort of magical property and ability to cure the elves if that's the way they're going, but. If that is the way they're going, that's what they're doing. And I just have to ride that out for the rest of the season. Because that is going to be, like, that's going to be coming up in every single episode. And I kind of refuse to, like, keep getting mad about it. Like, you know what I mean? So yeah, I don't okay. love it. But that's where they're going. And so, like, let's kind of experience the show that they're giving us. It's kind of how we need to, to be on the ride because it, it's going to, you know, I think that it's going to shake out. I, th I still think it's going to shake out that Sauron is behind it. So I think that's I do, too. It. 
and kind of for a meta reason, not just because I, I hope it's the case, but there was an interview, and I wish I could remember exactly who, but if somebody affiliated with the show, I think it was J.A. Bayona, gave an interview where he said that one of the central um, conflicts, and you know he didn't call it a mystery box, but I think it is kind of mystery boxes, is that the elves think that there's something going on, and is it actually true? And now I think, what else could it possibly be referring to? Because that is the that is the central thing that's going on, the central like fact that they are basing all of their future actions on, is that they believe that, that Mithril has these magical properties because of this myth. And so I think what he was in some, suggesting is exactly what we were hoping, which is that that myth is false within the universe. And uh, so I'm still hanging on very tightly to the idea that this is all part of a, a deception or that there's, it's not exactly uh, our worst fears. You know, it's going to be something in the middle. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think... I want to talk about one of the scenes and sequences that was really great. Well, can we um, can we kind of like go back to the beginning? But yeah, talk? I'm going. Yeah, I'm doing just oh, that's that. Doing. Okay. The very beginning was great, yeah. and that whole sequence was so jarring and so disorienting, and so effective. Like seeing the seeing the the ashes and the fire everywhere, and her Galadriel waking up to yeah. see you know that horse coming towards her the horse burning was awful uh, right. and just so affecting um and seeing muriel get scalded you know in the face and lose sight was really 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 powerful and really um devastating because you see the the cost of that choice that she made for them to go to war um so i thought all of that was done really well, like waking, Galadriel waking up to the devastation that the eruption had wrought. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it was a strong opening. I mean, the opening shot with the eye, mm-hmm. um, the close-up of the eye and her opening her eyelid and the ash, I mean, that puts you right into the scene. Interestingly, and you know, we remember this from the trailer, you know, she's upside down. So it's a little disorienting, like the way her eye opens, it's like the opposite direction than you yeah. think. Yeah. Um, it, you know, I like you, it was a little bit, weird we already said this but you know she's covered in ash meaning that like the world around her has burned and yet she is fine and there are other you know houses have like been devastated they're burned to the ground and other people are on fire like and other people are on fire and they're (laughs) like pieces of ash and but then there are randomly other people who are just like totally unaffected theo's running around he's like yeah i'm fine i'm good You know, all our main so, characters, surprise, surprise, all the main characters are fine. It's a little weird. You know, I, I want to tell myself that like, oh, it maybe it was like at the very edge of the pyroclastic flow. And it's like, so it wasn't, but that's not how they showed it. It was like a wave of fire that washed over the, the town. So yeah, it's a little weird, but then that's another thing. I'm just going to like swallow hard. It's okay. You know, push off to the side and get into the scene. And once I did that, it's like. I love, I mean, it's it's like after a battle scene. We've seen these yeah. things all before. She's wandering wandering around. She's disoriented. People right. are, a horse is running by with fire on it. It's it's like, it is yeah. post-apocalyptic. It's like you're in hell. I love the red um, yeah. tint to everything. Mm-hmm. The red and the gray is like all you see, you know, very wonderfully shot in that respect. Yes, um, that's, And it's I just totally chaos. Agree. And it chaos. was just chaos, you know, a huge moment for Isildur, you know, we mm-hmm. kind of stumble on him and he's saving, uh, um, Valen, Valendil, his friend. Yes. And he friend. gets him out, sees his other friend dead. And dead. this is like, that is an upsetting moment. Yeah. And he Sad, was the peacemaker. Tragic. He was, the, he was the, 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 
kind of the fun one, you know. And he and had just, just said he wanted to go home. Yes. He never wanted to see a battle again. Had so my that... fill of war. And, uh, well, now he'll never have to fight again because he is dead. Yeah, so that packed a punch. That was, that was you know, upsetting. And But it added to the, like, okay, that there really was a volcanic explosion. It can't just be like, oh, every, you know, miraculously we're all okay. Yeah. And we see the devastation later, like in the yeah. the tent with all the people who were like very severely injured. They did not shy away from showing Oh my that. gosh, it was kind of gruesome. Yeah, yeah. One and those are the people that they could save and and take away. Like I think we're definitely led to understand that a lot of people died. Um you know, very gruesome and yeah, uh, flaming deaths. But, you know, Galadriel Galadriel is fine. Not not burned. Just uh yeah, not dead yet, just very badly burned. Very badly oh, burned. <laughs> um, awesome. I, I, the reunification scene with Theo and Bronwyn and Arondir was a little cheesy. A little cheesy. It was just, nice. It wasn't, I didn't think it was over the top. Uh, I mean, what are they supposed to do? Little... Just like high five? <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, hey, you I made just... it. Cool. Cool, brah. No, there were just a couple moments, and that was one of them that I felt like were a little bit too on the nose. Like, is that my mother? No, it's not. Turn around, and there she is. I guess like heavy oh, melodrama. Yeah. There's a little bit of predictability there. Yeah, the melodrama. And then the yeah, other moment that you. did not work at all for me was Elendil. You know, he's angry because he thinks his son is dead. But the moment where he turns away and cr- starts crying. His crying really, face. I didn't really like the way that was shot. There was something that didn't. I didn't like about it. I think it's hard to pinpoint exactly, but it seemed like cheesy. And also, he's such a dignified guy mm-hmm. that the crying there looked really unnatural. Like, I, mm. he was like kind of heavy sobbing. I felt like one uh, glistening uh. tear would have been. <laughs> you wanted the one tear. Yeah, like, I mean, I I liked every other scene leading up to that. I thought was like, you know, where he's just kind of almost in a daze, you know, and then. Yeah. Um, we also see anger. There's, he's feeling mm-hmm. a lot of anger. So, um, but yeah, the- going going back, uh, I so Gladwell and Theo, like you know, this whole Southlands plot kind of picks up with them. Like we see the destruction. Isildur is buried under like so much fire. There's it's kind of ridiculous. We know he's gonna live. I don't know how he lives, but all that happens. But then we follow Galadriel and Theo, and I loved basically every second of those scenes because yes. remember they they never met so she finds yeah. this young boy i mean maybe they met after the battle and everybody's celebrating for like a, a moment but they don't really know each other and so she you know finds this kid who's calling for help she says over here you know um she's not as mo- he's looking for his mother but she's not his mother but she sort of becomes his foster mother for just a moment and um through all of their uh travels like she's taking him to where she believes all the numenorians will be she is being the wise mentor that we know Gladwell can be. And she is, she's spouting off like real wisdom. And yeah. one thing I loved about every second of these scenes is there's really two things going on. She's talking to Theo, but she's also really talking to herself. Like right. that's the she's subtext sort of, of everything. reminding herself of mm-hmm. these inner values that she, these ethics that she has um, that we haven't really seen. Yeah. Um, so was, well, was she's been great. behaving in absolute conflict with all of these yeah. values, right? Like, yeah, I mean, exactly. she has this great line, like, every battle is fought from within and without, or from without and within, I forget what it was, but basically the the implication being that it's not just, you know, you're swinging the sword, 
Um, you don't just fight for the good ends. You have to fight in a good way. And, right. you know, whenever she gives one of these lines, you can see her kind of reacting to her own advice, like her realization that she has not been walking the path that she is preaching to Theo. She yeah. has been fighting for good ends, like, you know, fighting Sauron is definitely good, but she's been going about it kind of in a bad way, in a self-destructive way. Right. Yes. And I think this was a very clever way to kind of um, bring us back to the Third Age Galadriel that we've been wanting to see, mm-hmm. or many of us have been wanting to see. Yeah, the seeds of it. Like, it's there. And I think I I like the idea of a of a grief-stricken Galadriel who is fueled by, like, there's hate. And I, I like all of that, everything that they've been doing with it. I think the problem that people have had, and I get it, is that we haven't really even seen a seed of what becomes the later Galadriel. She's like so completely different. We don't see any. Yeah. And al- but also no self-reflection similar. at all. No, like. Right. Right. There's no, no inner conflict. It's no just, inner conflict. Exactly. Yeah. It's just, no, I'm right. I'm on a like holy mission. And uh, and in the moments where she acknowledges some inner conflict, like in the scene with uh, Halbrand before they leave Numenor, those scenes didn't seem very, um, there's no actual realization. Like she says, he's like, but why are you, why are you still fighting? Why are you still fighting? And she says, because I can't stop. Like, that's not, <laughs> that's not the reason. Like, you, yes, you can't stop. It's not that is the symptom. It's not. Why can't you stop? That's supposed to be the realization, the meaningful realization of that moment. And they were right. filming it like she had some profound uh, realization. But, you know, if that realization is just, I can't stop, like, that's not new. We already knew that. That's. The question you've been trying to answer in this moment is supposed to be where you give us the answer. So, uh, right. you know, it didn't really work. But now we're finally seeing that inner wisdom um, fighting back against what's been driving her. And yeah. uh, we had an interesting question during the lore panel. Somebody called in and, and asked, like, do you think that this moment where Mount Doom erupts and she lets the pyroclastic flow just wash over her, is this almost like suicidal in a way? And if she survives, is it going to be like a turning point for her? And I don't know fully how they're going to treat that moment, um, but it certainly seems like we are seeing a slightly different Galadriel, a more reflective Galadriel, whether that's because of the eruption or just because of these scenes with Theo, you know, being around someone youthful that she is trying to mentor, like she has to put on her best self and now she like is reminded what that is. Um, Mm. I I don't know which which is to blame or which is uh, to get credit, but she is kind of turning over a new leaf. Turning over a new leaf. Maybe this is the rebirth of Galadriel, kissed mm-hmm. by fire and reborn into the wisdom that she once had and now yeah. has again. Um, yeah, I hope so. I thought there was a really great uh, moment where she stays his hand with the orcs yeah. too, and there's the you know they're being hunted and they're hiding under a branch. It was so. It, it reminded me so much of um, Fellowship of the Ring when they're hiding from the Nazgul under the mm, tree. Yeah, um, and. Yeah, I loved. Yeah, I loved that whole sequence. I thought that was incredibly uh, well done, and some nice dialogue too. That this is kind of really what I'm good talking dialogue. about, where it gets the themes in there. Like um, Galadriel says, you know, get some sleep, and you know, we'll uh, leave it first light. First of all, echoing what she says to her one of her elvish subordinates in episode one, where they're mm-hmm. in uh, Atumno or Udun, like that fortress in the north. And they discover Sauron, and, and he's like, hey, we should go home. And she's like, you know, get some shut-eye. We leave it first light. And she said almost, I, I think it's like verbatim the same thing. I have to go back and check, but I think it's verbatim the same, what she's saying to Theo, which I don't know exactly what to make of that, but that's interesting. But, but in, then Theo's but response is... But with a totally is, different 
um, uh, affect in her voice, though. Yes. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's more like contrasted. Yeah. Yeah. She's um, she's actually she actually cares about Theo, and she's telling him to get some sleep so that he gets some sleep and feels rested and and recovers. Um, whereas before she was doing it because she wants to keep driving she was like, them forward. Such suck it up, you little yeah. bitches. Yeah. <laughs> but then Theo's response is so nice. You know, she says, we leave at first light. And he says, what light? And, you know, this that fit nicely into the, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes ham-fisted uh, light and dark theme that they've been working on, like, throughout all the episodes. But that was just, that was a little moment where it, the dialogue just felt very, very right to me. You know, all he said is, mm-hmm. you know, what light? And it actually, yes. they weren't talking metaphorically. She was literally saying, we leave it first light. And he says, what light? It is what talking light? expressly like ask, about yeah, he's the like literal asking light. A question. Yeah. But there's also, a, you know, a metaphorical valence to all of it, of course, right. because what hope does he have? If light is a metaphor for hope, his home is destroyed. He, he believes thinks his, his mother mother's is dead. dead. Yeah. 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 So, no, just those were, simple. that was a great for me. All of it. All of it. No complaints there. No complaints there. I mean, the Harfoot stuff, as I said before, which we should move to, the only thing I liked about the Harfoots this time was getting to see the three cultists up close and personal. Um, mm-hmm. I'm so intrigued by who they are, what they're doing. And I'm no closer to guessing who they are. No. Why <laughs> they're really tracking the stranger, I have no, no clue. I, I mean, they've got to be more goth worshipers they're e- they're clearly evil they like savagely yeah, set yeah, their yeah. wagons ablaze that was like a terrible moment so i see three options that i'm currently weighing in my brain one is just more goth occultists people who worship melkor um you know their their um mainstays from like the olden days and that sort of community and belief system has just persisted and they're melkor worshipers or they are blue wizard cultists you know go back to our blue wizard episode we talked about the different versions that tolkien was playing with and one of the versions the blue wizards came over they kind of went out east and then they kind of got a little bit corrupted and they founded some of the like magical and occult groups that we know of today it was kind of the implication um so that could be that's one theory that there's actually another blue wizard already in middle earth he has now created these occult groups so these are you know followers of the blue wizard number one and they've been instructed to track down blue wizard number two and that's why they have that's why there's like this constellation that not only the strangers seems to be aware of but the occultists are aware of like it's etched onto the the plate or the shield on the back of one um so that's why they're kind of connected by symbology because they're all related to blue wizards I mean, that's a or, bummer for me. It's, okay, keep going. Yeah, go, no, go. Uh, okay, so number three, and I'll be real quick. Um, or they're werewolves. And that's a theory I actually really like. Wait, Sau- what? Yeah. Sauron in the first age, um, you know, one of his one of his hangouts, one of his country houses was Tolsirion, Isle of Werewolves. And so there were werewol- werewolves. And there's not a lot of elaboration on werewolves, but there are definitely werewolves in Silmarillion. And... Um, he was sort of. That seems like a stretch to me. It's from, but it's it's related. They don't to, look like werewolves at all. No, 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 no. no. Or behave uh, but like here's werewolves. here's where it get, gets interesting. There's three of them, and there have been three funky-looking wolves tracking the Harfoots this whole time, and they they attack <gasps> the Harfoots and they get deflected by the stranger. Those are weird-looking wolves. They don't look like the um, the warg. Maybe they're just regular no. wolves, but maybe oh. they're werewolves. Because they seem smart. They're more than just dumb animals. They, they seem to have some sort of uh, 
agency and mission, you know, they are tracking the Harfoots for some reason. So I, I saw this theory and I really like it that these are shapeshifters, like shapeshifting mm. werewolves, followers of Sauron from the old days, and they're trying to track down this wizard because they know he'll be a threat. Interesting. Okay. All right. I hadn't heard that one. I like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I liked getting to see them. I like that they're all three female or they appear to be female. Just interesting. I want more of them. I want more, more, more. Like the villains in the show are so good. They're so compelling. Yeah. I'm like so much more into the villains. That's not true. I'm into some <laughs> of the good guys, but the villains, I'm like, I want more. I want to see more of Adar. I want to see more of the cultists. I want to see it all. Um, yeah, I really want to see more cultists too. I thought we were going to get more because they were featured so heavily in the yeah. promo stuff. Like was misleading. And I, you know what I love? I love that they did not say one word. I was like, yes. oh, that's so yeah. smart. So smart for them to just say nothing but yes. like behave abhorrently and yeah. then disappear. I wish we would have seen them disappear. It just kind of cut away. Um, so that was the best part of the Harfits for me. I did not like um, I did not like Nori's father's speech. I thought it was so heavy handed and so ridiculous. The like You are just a Scrooge McDuck today. <laughs> our hearts as big as our feet. <laughs> like, first of all, we know that's not true when he was like, We never leave anyone, you know, like we all stick together. Like we know that's bullshit but that's, now. Well that's but that's <laughs> You're gonna leave the weakest link behind, which yeah. I hate that too. I hate that, that aspect is, of I know but I'm coming around to enjoying the contrast, the cognitive dissonance that's built into their culture, where it is a it is a core value of their group that they stick together, they never leave anyone behind, but that they actually but then that's contrasted with the truth, which is they do leave people behind, and it's actually kind of institutionalized that they will leave the weak link behind, but they carry them along in their hearts as sort of like a penance and a way of honoring them. Hmm. So it's like, but you know, and those but people this, I'm just they agree to be left behind in a way because it it strengthens the group. It's so interesting, and but I never would have thought of this because hmm. of the dissonance. But it like makes them a little more fascinating. Uh, yeah, I, I have trouble with it. I wrestle with it a little bit. <laughs> and uh, just the speech itself, just the dialogue itself was not good. You know, the di- the actual di- speech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was not good. It's, I, so it, part of that was um, featured in like some of the promotional materials before the show came out. And I remember thinking where he says like, uh, our hearts are bigger than our feet. Yeah. Or feet. Um, I, I, when I heard it like out of context, I was like, that's, I don't like that. It was in not context, good in it was, context either. It was a little better. It was a little better, but it was still like <laughs> not my favorite. Um, but it was okay. I mean, yeah. it didn't bother me. Like it, bo- it clearly bothered you. It, <laughs> it like, bothered me, and way. it bothered me. The whole ha- the whole thing bothered me. That that Nori all of a sudden was like, "You're right. I shouldn't. I shouldn't have let him in because he accidentally like hit her with a branch when he was so clearly trying to heal the tree." And then she oh, but had such. She's his- not. She's not mad at him for the branch. I don't think that's what was going on in that scene. I think because that's after he leaves, like after he's going to leave. Yeah, but she was um, like, I shouldn't have strayed off the road. Yeah, and I'm she regrets it because foot. she feels like she's a failure. Like she thought she was going to be doing something great with this stranger and that she had a purpose and that there was like a fate that, that he came to her through fate. And so she thought she was a part of something bigger. And then he just left. And it was like she feels so disappointed, let down. She was hanging on to this um, the stranger and whatever was going to come with him to find some meaning in her life or to add new meaning. And when he leaves and it's kind of uneventful and unceremonious, she's feels really, really down about that. That is cutting 
to the core of like some issues that she has. And so that's what she's upset about. She's not like mad at the stranger because he, he broke a tree limb or whatever. Um, she's just really disappointed that it didn't lead anywhere else. I, I do agree with you. Like the tree limb break, like that kid was dumb. Why did that kid run forward? It was just also a silly, it was a silly little, yeah, it was just like a silly little plot addition that I felt like was, well, it was, I thought it was, it was, it was playing into this idea that he is a danger to them. Like he keeps accidentally hurting them. Like it's, they, they clearly know that it's an accident. So they're not mad at him anymore, but that everyone's realizing like, he's just a danger. It's, he can't help it. He's not doing it on purpose, but he is a danger to us. Um, and so then, they kind of like, um, right. You know, they don't kick him out, but they're like, it's time to go our separate ways, and and we'll go our way, you go your way, and you know, yeah, no, no will, but you need to go your own direction. Which they then repent about, like they realize it was a mistake. They yeah, had... they realize it was a mistake. Yeah. So for some reason, I think it was the dialogue mostly. Those scenes, the dialogue and mm-hmm. the scenes weren't totally jiving, and the I'm glad so they went thing... after after him, but um... yeah. Well, it's, and it's interesting that the four of them go after him. So we get a little, yeah. little, you know, fellowship, the, like the four hobbits going on a mission together, um, mm-hmm. echoing, you know, fellowship of the ring, right. Mary Pippin, Sam and Frodo yeah. going off into the countryside. Um, they're going into Greenwood the Great, which is not yet Mirkwood. It becomes Mirkwood in the third age, but now it's just Greenwood the Great. So one thing that I do like about this direction is, well, I don't know if I like it. I, I was perfectly fine with. I like the Hartford storyline. I think you and I both have for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been fine with them having this big group. But now I don't think we're going to follow the main caravan anymore. I think we are just going to stick with these four hobbits and follow their adventure for mm-hmm. a little while. Like maybe they'll sync back up with the main caravan eventually. But I don't think we're going to be spending time with the main caravan. It's now just these four hobbits, which right. makes their plotline a little more intimate, smaller, more manageable. So they can do more with it. Right. Um, I so think I, that's I a good like direction. That. Good direction, get to know them a little bit better. Yeah, I have no idea still where where this is all going with the stranger. I mean, I th- I just don't really know how they're going to tie it in, I suppose, to the larger picture, but we'll we'll see. I don't think they will. It's entirely possible that they that they won't they tie it won't. in. And I hope they don't. Um at least I don't think the Harfoots will connect with like the Southlanders or the Numenorians. I don't think there's that they're going to play any role in that, which has been kind of implied in the marketing materials. I think that their importance to the plot is their connection to the stranger who and the stranger will have some interactions with the larger plot or some significance that we will see, but not the Harfoots. The and I would like, yeah. yeah, and I would like that because it is very important that the Harfoots kind of get left out of all the records there. No one really knows about them. And right. So they, Nobody really discovers them. Until yes. Yes. Much later. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think, think they'll be kind of point. flying under the radar for most of this show or all of the show. Um, um, well, I feel like yeah. we should talk about. Well, there's one thing I want to mention about the, this scenes with the stranger. Okay. I've noticed they have some of the most beautiful like still shots. Like if you just, if you pause oh, the yeah. screen, yes. That's every time true. the stranger is like by a tree or something, just yeah. the image of the framing of him by the tree, like trying to pick a, a fruit that's dead. They've done that a few times. There's also one where he's standing on a rock and he's looking up at the moon in a prior mm-hmm. episode. 
um, and they've had some others, I'm always just like entranced by and, and totally enchanted by those images. I just really love. I them see why they used a lot of those for the promos. I mean, they and with the handoff with the apple, Nori gives him the apple. They used that. It's really beautiful. You're right. There's just gorgeous, gorgeous um, cinematography there, and also the 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 surroundings are just so beautiful. It's so green and lush, like just absolutely yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. Interesting that, you know, they get to the Grove, which has been their destination this whole way. And we're led to believe it's this beautiful, beautiful place. And of course it was until it was destroyed by, you know, the vomit of Mount Doom, which it's interesting that 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 made it all the way to Greenwood, like from Mordor. If you look on the map, that's a really long way for, for the chunks to, to fly. Yeah. Um, but I was I was kind of expecting the arrival at the Grove and like their experience at the Grove to somehow just play out differently. Like, um, I for one, I kind of thought we were gonna meet Entwives. You know, we know that Entwives tend to garden. I'm just I'm well, no, no, I'm I'm rolling with it. But I I am excited to see Ents or Entwives at some point, and I thought this was gonna be that moment because we know the Ents are doing stuff like they got gardens and they're teaching mm-hmm. men and you know Harfoots are technically in, uh, among the race of men. Uh, way way back. Um, I thought that this would be the grove that they're referring to is actually kind of part of the realm of the Antwives. And um, I was thinking we might, and maybe it actually, maybe it was, and we just didn't see them. They just didn't happen to be there when the Harfits arrived. But I thought, oh, I really wanted to see an Antwife. And we didn't yet. So I get to keep waiting for that, I guess. Yeah, that'll be something. You know, I don't think we're going to see them this season. They got to save some no, things. We did no, see a Balrog. Not. Spoiler, I'm jumping right to the end. We don't yeah, we can yeah, go yeah. over the dorms, but we did see the Balrog. Like that was exciting. Yes. Yeah. It ended Meh. with a bang for sure. Meh. I think really? I think that Balrog it's just all fan service. A we already saw that in the Comic Con trailer, so it's not like I saw something new. And it, it didn't um it didn't do anything for me plot wise. So it just seemed like it felt like something that was Really? You don't jammed think in. you don't think we're gonna see the fall of Casa Doom in this oh, show? Oh maybe. Maybe, but way, way, way down the line. Like yeah. I do not think that they're going like I don't think the Balrog will awake and do anything in Casa Doom, it, definitely not in this season. I don't think the season after. You know, it, it's way too soon for that timeline wise. Sticking with the lore, and even if they're not, so sticking they're with just the lore, teasing us, teasing us with that Balrog. They're just teasing us, and it's just fan service. I think so. I was kind of like, whatever. Like it's cool, I guess, but I would have preferred actually that they left it at, like the the leaf goes falls all the way down there and bursts into flame because the Balrog's there, and then they cut away. Like, mm. I don't need to see the reveal and the Balrog roars. Like, wouldn't someone hear that roar? You know, like, it's I don't know. It's a long it just... way down. I don't know. And they are sealing it up. So maybe not. Um, yeah, so you you clearly loved the whole plot with uh, the dwarves and Elrond. Oh, so good. You thought it was I so thought good. it was. Oh, it, every scene I thought was very, very well done. A, I love the actor who's playing King Durin. He is. Yeah. He's great. Unbelievably good. He's great in Ozark. I don't know if you ever saw Ozark. I love Ozark. He's fantastic in that. Wait, who That's is he I in first... Ozark? I was like trying to place oh, this guy, but. He is. Um, so if you Google the actor's picture, you'll instantly place him. He's the guy who ran the the poppy farm. Like he was the first sort of. Oh, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's who it is. It was bugging me because I was like, I know this voice. I know this yeah. voice. Yeah, I didn't bother looking it up, but every time I was like, "Oh, I know this person." Okay, yep. It's it's he's so great, he's and a great uh, actor. I like the way he acted 
every moment of this, like in his dialogue with Elrond, um, you know, he appreciates that Elrond speaks Kuzdul or picks up some words. Mm-hmm. And so he, he reacts appreciatively to that. But then when he hears the offer, you know, he says, uh, um, I'll speak with my son now. And, and so Elrond's about to leave and they share a glance. And just the way he, he never uh, breaks his gaze with Elrond. He's always looking directly at him. Mm. Like mm-hmm. dwarves are so short and elves are so tall. And it, it's easy, like in a lot of situations with the blocking, the person who's taller, uh, it's uh, they're the dominant person in the conversation. And like you see that in camera angles as well. And But I did not feel that Elrond was in any way dominating King Durin no. just because of King and Durin's bearing. And I also bearing. love when he kneels to show like that respect yes. and like yeah. ask him to save his people. Um, I thought that was great. Like Elrond has so much range and that, yes. you know, the actor's wonderful. I, I and he moves his face a lot. I'm just throwing that <laughs> <out there. laughs> Very um, fascinating. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> as opposed to Mordoveth Clark um, or Gladriel. Gladriel, I should say. But, I thought it was very interesting that Elrond in this scene with King Durin, where he's trying to convince him to trust the elves, he's, he, he uses his half-elven status to his advantage. I am no mere elf. Yeah, that was interesting. Um, which, like in a prior episode, Gil-galad called Elrond, you know, Elrond Peridel, which means half-elven. And I thought the tone of voice he used kind of implied that it was almost it's like, like a bit of a slant, a little bit of an insult, like I'm yeah. putting, you, putting you in your place, half-elven. That's a little bit how it felt to me. I don't know. It could be read differently, but that's how it felt. And here, Elrond is using this very much to his advantage. I'm no mere elf. You can kind of trust me for that reason. And I can see in the elves what they can't see in themselves. And, um, you know, he's begging King Durin. And the, the sympathy on King Durin's face, you can see that in his face. It beautifully acted. Um, but then, you know, of course, he doesn't give anything away. And he, he sees them out. And then there's this powerful scene between... King Doran and Prince Doran, which is so fascinating, both in terms of their personal relationship. We've already seen them a little bit at odds. Mm-hmm. They love each other, clearly. King Doran loves his son. Prince Doran loves his father. But there's a frustration there because they have different visions for Khazad Doom. And right. all of that comes to a head, a very yeah, dramatic it's the head. the boiling point. Big, definitely, yeah. this was the boiling point between those two. Yeah. It had been a and brewing guess, well, and then it the, blew The up. true boiling point is, is after... King Doran discovers Prince Doran mining Mithril, but right, it, right. there is like the tension really starts to simmer in, in this initial scene um, where King Doran is very, very wise in a certain respect. He is saying the elves are trying to cheat death. And really what he's saying is they're not abiding by their nature. If it is their nature to, in their nature to fade, if that is their fate, that has been faded by people much smarter than us. And really he's referring to the Valar obliquely, um, Really right. should be referring to uh, Eru Iluvatar, but um, it, it, that's fine. You know, he's saying there is a fate here, and they're trying to uh, undermine yeah, their time the will has come, of God, is what he said. Yeah, and their time there's has wisdom come. in that because that is a theme that runs throughout all this. Like the Numenorians are trying to cheat their and fate, that's such trying to cheat a, mortality. That's such a relatable theme for us as well. I mean, in our yeah. in the real world, right? There are people who think this way. Sure, I kind of think that way when it comes to real life. <laughs> I don't want to die. <laughs> oh, I but, mean, there are people who, th- who, yes, yeah. I mean, there's, 
I'm not going to, I'm going to stop right there because <laughs> we want to, we don't want to get political. So we'll just talk fantasy oh, okay. on the show. But okay. yeah, I mean, we see, we see that kind of train of thought play out in many different situations and scenarios. You know, yeah. are you, are you, fa- are you messing with fate? Are you messing with the will of God? Right. If you intervene in A, B, and C way or. Right intervene on someone's behalf in a b or c away right. or oh i know what you're talking about yeah um, um just different and king jordan is is right in that respect in the universe yeah. of tolkien like that is that is a very tolkienian theme yeah but also intermingled with that is a touch of prejudice you still see his old prejudice against the elves creeping up and that is a part of that's like thrown into the lobster pot of his emotions and his decision and yeah. um so there's there's some <laughs> negative elements there too prince durin on the other hand is kind of the opposite He's totally dismissive of this concern yeah. that King Joran has. And he's like, I don't care about all that. Um, My not worried about the fate of our people. Me. Yeah. Yes. And that is also a very Tolkienian theme. Mm-hmm. Friendship. Loyalty, fidelity, like my friend needs my help. I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm going to sa- make sacrifices right. to help him. And so these, again, we, we see these two Tolkienian concepts kind of in conflict with each other. Yeah. I'm not sure who's more right. I mean... I think in the long run, you know, it's very interesting that Prince Durin is going to be mining for Mithril. That's going to end up waking the Balrog and destroying all of Khazad-dûm. You know, that is very clearly going to be the outcome that proves King Durin right Yeah. in the long run. Right? right. And it's interesting that actually the reason they're mining Mithril in this show is because of the elves, which isn't the case in, in no. uh, Lord of the Rings, right? And that actually reminds me of a scene after... The Fellowship escapes the Mines of Moria, and they're chatting with, I think, I mean, they're getting into Lothlorien, and I don't remember if it's Celeborn uh, or or whatever, the Haldir, the guard that picks them up. There's some conversation about, like, you're you're escaping Moria, you know, if, uh, some comment, I, I'm butchering this, but some comment about the power that had been awoken in the darkness, you know, basically the Balrog, and... Uh, Gimli basically says, it wasn't our fault. And Legolas, I think it says, well, I didn't say it was your fault. Basically, this dialogue about like whose fault it is that the mm. Balrog was awoken. Mm-hmm. And um, in the Lord of the Rings, the elves have nothing to do with that. That's actually part of why they want to keep the dwarves out, because the dwarves stirred up this ancient evil. Yeah. But in the Rings of Power, the elves are intimately involved with the reason uh, for the Balrog awakening. So yeah. I think it's really interesting. It is a really, in- yeah, it's a really different take. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely am enjoying this plot line. It's hard not to, not to wonder where it's all going, where it's, where are we going to, you know, how, how is this friendship going to, it's, it's, I'm anxious that this friendship is just going to blow up and you, you see that the the whole time the seeds of that planted it's going to blow up so it's painful it's just painful for me to watch it i'm not enjoying it because i'm like this is going to erupt and i want them to succeed well i want them to (laughs) succeed so badly so it it makes me like there's such a discomfort in these scenes because you know that it's no it's not going anywhere good well and the thing is they will succeed in what they're striving to do they will mine the mithril they'll be successful at it um, the elves will get all the mithril and the elves will use the mithril for their, you know, great projects, which will ultimately, uh, include the rings of power. So they will s- be successful in what they were aiming for. But what they didn't know is that what they were aiming for would ultimately lead to something horrible. So that's kind of what's interesting about it. 
Um, and I, I love, I love that their beautiful friendship is ultimately taking them down a path of, you know, horrible, horrible outcomes. It's that's so fascinating. The dramatic tension that's built baked into the core of this plot line is wonderful. Maybe that's a difference between the way we like to view things. Cause like there's certain things that like sitting in the discomfort of knowing that this is friendship is going to probably end tragically is so uncomfortable for me that it's like painful. I don't know what that says about me that I, but that's the, that's this whole second age story <clears throat> is going to be like that. I guess things like, but not not necessarily though, because we know like Galadriel will go on and do great things, and have her. We own know kingdom. that there is ultimately a happy ending at the end of the third age, but at the end of the second age, they'll defeat Sauron. But it will be what Elrond calls the Council of Elrond a fruitless victory. You know, they defeat him, but because his silver keeps the ring, evil will endure. Right? But That's... Elrond and Durin will never be friends again. This is going to be a for sure friendship ender. <laughs> Well, Durin will die, so that'll that'll definitely put the nail in their friendship coffin. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but I I, I think we've talked about this before, uh, either in this podcast or on the Fellowship of Fan streams. But that I think um, their friendship, the beats of their friendship, are going to correlate with the sort of military beats and the the beats of the relationship between the elves and the dwarves. So I think they will have a falling out. I think that that that'll be part and parcel with the dwarves shutting their doors mm-hmm. when Sauron rises. Um, cause Jordan will be like, dang it, we were wrong and we shouldn't have helped you. And because of this, stupid I know. Mission, so I know all this. So it's hard for yeah. me to watch because I just know how it's, I know exactly how it's going to end. Maybe yeah. they'll, maybe there'll be a twist along the way, but I'm pretty sure that's how it's all going to go down. <laughs> I just love that. There's going to be a, like a beautiful friendship that I care about that is at the core of this plot line. Like, cause otherwise it'd be kind of, it could be just like a militaristic plot line, very abstract. Okay. All these different people's. But there's a, a single relationship that's kind of the focal point for all of this. I can really get invested in that. And boy, oh boy, if if Owain Arthur isn't just like the most he is really actor. fantastic. I I totally agree. Like so so much range there, so much emotion. His eyes welling with tears. Like Prince yeah. Duran, I just want to give you a hug. You know, it's really impressive when an actor can sustain that sort of like passionate delivery of not just like one monologue, but like three and it's not too much you know yeah because normally you want to escalate things slowly so when you're delivering like if you're ever yelling that's the loudest that you get you know but like he's yelling several times or he's speaking passionately in the same way several times and And he swings between different poles of emotion he's angry he gets very very sad yeah and, and it works. Like it, it all can be works. easy to do that wrong, but yeah. It's really difficult to achieve that actually. Like and for people to stay engaged. Mm-hmm. Um while you're doing that. So yeah, so I was one, very impressed. Very impressed. One thing I loved about their scenes together, um so after Prince Doran realizes King Doran says no, you know, Prince Doran's in there with Disa and then Elrond comes in and you know, you talked about you liked how the ascetics didn't the 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 occultists didn't ever speak. They do that sometimes with other characters, and I love that they don't overwrite the dialogue. And yeah. so in that moment, Elrond goes in there, and all they do is exchange a glance. There's no words; it just cuts back and forth between them. These knowing glances, and Elrond understands. And they didn't jam lines or dialogue in there. It was yeah. just they had this moment, and I 
I love the pacing of individual scenes. You know, we can talk about the pacing of the show as a whole, but individual scenes, I think a lot of times they do very, very well. They let them breathe. Yeah. And there was a lot of a lot of room for that scene to come to life and for the characters to sort of just have their emotions quietly. And it, it worked really wonderfully. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. You know, um, I also always love watching Disa. I think she's wonderful. Um some of the dialogue there talking about the mother-in-law jokes, you know, I was like, all right, I don't, I don't love that stuff, but I do love, you know, I do love that we get to see that married couple. It's just so Mm -hmm. unusual for (laughs) a Lord of the Rings relationship. Like you, you, you don't see married couples. Um, No, 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 no. So it's really, it's kind of cool to see that depicted on screen. You know, what's funny is I thought I would be the one who would, bristle more at like the dwarf jokes um, because I really wanted to see a more serious take on the dwarves and I think you had kind of expressed yeah like I want that too but it's it's okay like I like it with Gimli and I liked it okay with Gimli too but actually we're kind of reversed because I didn't mind the like mother-in-law stuff I th- like it felt natural it's like a little goofy but like I'm okay no, with but like that little it was too little... much there was there were too many jokes and there was like a string of jokes and I was like just do one just one is fine yeah <laughs> yeah, agree, agree to disagree. It like it, me, you know, it takes me out of it when there's too many. Yeah. Okay, it worked. Like, it worked too many okay cheeky little jokes. Yeah, um, I liked. So one thing that I thought was interesting uh, when in that scene, the first goodbye, and Elrond says, "You know, do you know the Elvish word for goodbye?" And oh, yes. Durin says, "Namarie," yes. so he knows Elvish. Mm-hmm. In in the earlier scene, Elrond knew Kuzdul. He understood Kuzdul, mm-hmm. right? So remember languages and how important languages are to Tolkien, these two friends of entirely different race, they've learned each other's language. They're, mm-hmm. they're starting to. And that is in itself very strong and important evidence, a very strong indicator of the profundity of their relationship, that they would learn each other's languages. And um, they don't dwell on that, but it's just, it's in there. And I really, yeah. really like that. Yeah. And boy, Elrond is so uh, understanding. Like Duran just said, gracious. yeah, sorry, He's so you're, gracious. you're all going to die. And uh, uh, Elrond's like, doesn't make him feel bad about it. it. Doesn't really get upset. Is very gracious. And he says, Namarie, which is go to the good, mm-hmm. um, which is just so beautiful. I love that they, I love in this show that they are using, that they're depicting so many relationships between different cultures and what that looks like and the challenges associated with that. Because that is, again, so relatable. To all of us. Yeah. Like on a macro scale and a micro scale, both, you know, we can, we can all relate to that. Um, yeah. Well and said. so, yeah, really beautiful. Really, really beautiful. Um, what did you think of the scene between Durin and Disa? So after Durin and Elrond get caught mining the Mithril, Elrond gets booted out, and Prince Durin is freaking out. You know, he's blowing up, and so is Disa. They're both very, very pissed. And then, you know, they work through their emotions. But Disa ultimately says, basically, you are the king yeah. and you are ultimately going to be making these decisions. And we are going to we're going to mine this Mithril mm-hmm. and we're going to be. She said something like you're going to be the lord of or the king of this mountain and every other mountain. Like I sensed a lot of ambition. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And I feel like I, we're seeing just a touch of darkness a little bit of greed a little bit of ambition that that mm. dwarvish quality that we see um you know in thorin and through so much of the hobbit mm-hmm. you know that there's this 
and that that is going to be part of what again fuels the dwarves mining too greedily and too deep. There's that greed. That's there. such a good I, point. Did you and read that the same way? Um, I hadn't. It hadn't occurred to me there, but there that particular thought hadn't occurred to me. But what did occur to me was that she, um, there was a, a little bit of a darkness to her saying like, "Let's defy your father, the king." Um, yeah, he's I think saying, that's part but, of it too. But he's he is my father. I can't. And she's like, "It doesn't matter. You're going to be the king." That to me had like a dark underbelly. But you're so right that there's this other aspect where she's like a little bit, amb- too ambitious, a little too greedy, and that's gonna bite her in the ass for sure. Yeah, um, it's a good point. And we like both of these characters a lot. Like yeah. I think they're very well liked in the fandom. So it's. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, actually, the the more we talk about it, and the more I reflect on those scenes, you know, there's the scene after King Doran initially says no, and they sort of, uh, and and then and then after Elrond gets kicked out, those two scenes we see Prince Doran and Disa together, mm-hmm. talking through their feelings and what they want. And I really feel like we are seeing kind of the decline. We see them succumb to their greed because in the, the first mm-hmm. go round, Prince Doran says. You know, we can't defy the king. Is that what we want to tell our boys? Like, they realize it's kind of wrong to be so right. defiant. But then at the end of that, they end up kind of succumbing. But the reason they succumb is is totally out of love for Elrond. They see that the yeah. Mithril will will cure the rot. And he's just like, I, I got to save my friend. So that's initially why they succumb. For a very good reason to do a good thing, but but in a bad way, by defying the king. And then the second go-round... Um, they're going to, they want to defy the king for a slightly more selfish reason. They're not talking about the elves anymore, right? That ship has sailed. They're not going to be able to save the elves, but they're still going to defy King Durin, either while he's king or after he stops being king and Prince Durin ascends to the throne. They're going to do their own thing, and it is purely for greedy reasons or for ambitious reasons. And so we're really kind of seeing the, a bit of a decline for Prince Durin in this episode. Yeah. It didn't strike me at first, but the more I think about it, I think that's what's going on. And it will be a very slow decline. So this is this is smart to just start planting those tiny seeds in season one. Yeah. Oh, I love smart. Disa's eyes, too. Yeah. Oh, so beautiful. Yeah. It's perfect. All the aesthetics, the to contacts, me, yeah. to me, the aesthetics are all perfect. You know? And I've, I'm yeah. sure we've said it once, but I'll say it again. Oh. So- Elendil, do you want to talk a little? So there's two things that we should probably touch on before we get off. We can do it quickly. Elendil and Halbrand. Yes. Oh, Halbrand. How could so, we not have just talked about Halbrand? I mean, okay. Because he basically doesn't appear in this episode. No, he all. doesn't. But he, you know, he appears wounded. He was found on the road. Um, people are saying he could still be Sauron because he could have hurt himself. And he does go back. Galadriel brings him back. She's bringing the darkness yes. with her. Um, yes. which is what we feared. So still entirely possible that he's Sauron, still entirely possible that he's not, that he's the Witch King or, you know, the... Yeah. Like... Everything that's happened so far is consistent with every theory. You know, it, it, he could be Sauron, it could be other things. But last week I speculated during our lower panel fellowship of fans that if he is indeed Sauron, he has to get to Oregion somehow. So how is he going to do that? We kind of chatted about it. And I thought um, my theory is, well... The Southlands just got destroyed by a volcano. People are going to be injured. They're basically going to be refugees. Gil, uh, Galadriel is going to take the Southlander refugees to Region to get helped by the elves. And 
That's basically what is happening. Ding, ding, There's ding, a version ding, of ding. that. Not all the Southlanders, but Halbrand, just Halbrand, because he's the king and he's, he needs elvish medicine, which they didn't really establish why that's the case. I like that she how... said that line, though, like, this wound needs elvish medicine. Call back to yeah. Fellowship. See, that was, you know, that's there's a little too much of that going on. Call, callbacks to the there's movies. callbacks like to a little the too movies cute. and there needs to be more book dialogue book 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 right. dialogue like less yeah but i think they're trying to appeal to the wider fan base that is familiar super familiar with the movies there's a plenty of people that are very very familiar with the movies and not at all familiar with the books i i get that but the best part of those movies was that they used the book material so much yeah I, so I get that, and I, it's just not to my taste to the level they're doing. It doesn't bother me; like it doesn't take me out of it. <coughs> uh, I'm like I'm okay with it. It's just not. I would subjectively do it a little bit different. I hope they kind of pair it back in future seasons. Like it, it feels like something they don't need to keep doing. Like the show will eventually just need to be its own thing. Um, they don't need to keep like you know winking at the because uh, that's a wink. I don't yeah. like winks like that uh, so much, but it, it's okay. It's okay. Um, I don't know how Halbrand's gonna survive the ride all the way to Eregion, if indeed that is where they're going. It's like kind of a very, very long trip from Mordor. He also all the looked way to fine atop that horse. I was like, wait a second. Thought he yeah, was super it was like he was wounded. on death's door while he was yeah. laying down. And, and then, then he's like on the horse. Like upright. Yeah. I was like, wait a wait so, a wait a tick. That was the only moment that really kind of like caused me a little bit of suspension of disbelief. Like I guess if he's Sauron, then that's fine. He can do it. But like why would Galadriel ever think a mortal man could make that ride considering she just diagnosed the wound as being like incurable except with elvish medicine. Uh, so that was a little wacky. Yeah, little that, wacky. that bugged me as well. But um, but even though Halbrand wasn't in this episode very much, I felt his presence throughout. I thought he loomed over the episode because I couldn't help but wonder where's Halbrand, right? Because you're looking for all your characters through every yeah. scene. Like we don't know... So in the very first ep- uh, scene, we we see where Tarmiriel is. We see what happens to Isildur, Valendil, uh, Antamo, Galadriel, right, the Theo. Same for the very end. Just the very. We see end. all of those, but then like it takes some time before we see Elendil, and it's the very end where we see Halbrand. And so there's all these kinds of questions going through my mind because, of course, there's the theory that like, well, if Halbrand is Sauron, maybe he and Adar actually were in league together the whole time, and maybe he's the one who who let Adar out. Or maybe Adar is the one who stabbed him. Like, maybe they got in some conflict. So I'm, like, wondering, where's Halbrand? And what does that mean that we haven't seen him? Is he actually dead? There's no way he's actually dead. Is he a part of this? Did he escape? So I was thinking about that in all the Southlander scenes, wondering when they're going to run into Halbrand and what is he doing? Um, I actually thought, so I like the the theory that he is the king of the dead. Yeah. Um, I thought he was going to be the one to save Isildur. Oh. And that would be part of them forging their friendship, which ultimately but maybe, would But maybe betray. he was. Maybe he did. We don't know. I guess that's still possible. It's still yeah, possible because we, we don't know what happened to Isildur mm-hmm. yet. You think you think Halbrand would mention it to Elendil, though? Yes. You know? Yeah, I think he Although would. maybe Halbrand doesn't know that Isildur is Elendil's son. Yeah. Uh, actually, no, 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 because Halbrand saves Elendil in the battle. And I think he and Isildur share a meaningful glance or something. Hmm. So I think he, I think he knows. Anyway, but this is the type of stuff I was thinking, like all through the episodes. So yeah. Even though Halbrand wasn't there, he was still kind of a part of my experience of watching the episode. 
Um, so I thought, how did he get cut too? And who cut him? An orc? We're assuming that's it was the an question. Orc? Like yeah. everyone else is getting burned up. You know, they're and getting crushed by things. Yeah. But he got. He got. Did they say was it an axe wound? Or did they specify? They don't specify. So what if okay. he ran into? Adar. Adar. That could be. Yeah. So that's a, a, another question mark. So it's many very, questions. Very so many questions. Ah. Blind Tarmiriel. What'd you think of that? Oh, I thought that was actually like really effective because she feels the repercussions of this choice. And also what a wonderful way to remind the audience that her father had said all that there is for you in Middle Earth is darkness. Yes. You'll only find darkness there. And so like literally literally darkness now. (laughs) Uh, So effective and so devastating. That term. and we're never told in the books, of course, that she goes blind. This is not something that's like from the lore, but it's like also again, there's a huge blank slate for Tarmiriel, um, and they're playing with her character. So I'm okay with him with him doing this from yeah. a lore perspective. And within the context of the show, I think it is fascinating. And really, yeah. she is she sacrifices something very significantly, and now she's fully committed. After that experience, she's yeah, fully she's committed. Like, to we're the gonna come path. back. We're gonna come back. We're gonna, they have no idea who they just messed with. I was right. like, yeah, Muriel. I really like yeah. her character. I like her character a Me lot. Me too. Yeah. I, yeah. It's getting more interesting now that she's blind and uh, her motives are a little more clear, you know? Yeah. Um. So I <clears throat> I like the the narrative possibilities yes. that are created with, with her going blind. Um. I also like the contrast with Elendil. So Elendil is not yet the leader he needs to be because he's still very much you know, dealing with his own emotions and his grief and yeah. not that there's anything wrong with dealing with, you know, he just, he thinks his son just died. And so that's going to make you feel all kinds of things like, but his reaction is he's mad at Galadriel for making them go to middle earth. Of course, Galadriel wasn't wrong. She was right. I should all along, never have picked her up from the ocean yeah. or something. I was like, okay, it doesn't seem like a very Elendil response, but, but it is an Elendil response in this moment. Having just learned that his his son died, you know, we're not yet seeing King Elendil. We're seeing Elendil, um, just like Gladriel has to go through some stuff to become the Gladriel we've seen in the Third Age. Elendil has to go through some stuff before he becomes the King Elendil that can lead the faithful. Um, he's still conflicted, and he's, you know, he was like kind of going back to the faithful, but now he's suffered a loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a consequence for his choice, and he regrets his choice mm-hmm. and i i'm digging on that and it's it's an extreme you know regret it's not logical right because of course galadriel was completely right there was evil on the rise the southlanders were at risk and they came and saved them um the risk was greater than they even realized so now the numenorians were defeated so um Elendil thought they would just sweep in come in and save the day probably didn't really fully appreciate the risk that that he was facing right um so I think it's it's very fascinating that he is like he's suffering and his grief causes him to be a little bit irrational and to want to abandon kind of all of his beliefs. He wants to go home and say, screw this Middle Earth. Um, Tarmiriel, on the other hand, she suffers not the loss of a son, but she suffers the loss of her eyesight. And but she emerges as a stronger leader than ever before. Yeah. And so that's I think Elendil needs to go through some more development before he gets to where Tarmiriel is now. Mm, yeah. And, and, you know, he is such a significant character in so many ways that no doubt we're going to see him 
really, really undergo transformation throughout yeah. the series. He'll be with us for a while. Oh yeah. Ugh. I'm so that's uh, I I loved everything that they were doing. Like there's character development. There's huge there's stakes character in this development episode. happening. Oh, the scene where he releases the horse. Yes. Yeah. They were and they. Uh, Ten bucks you know, says that that horse goes and finds Sildor. A thousand bucks. Oh, that's clearly what's going on because they'd set that up, right? Elendil had a, a discussion with Isildur about how riders and horses almost can like read their minds and horses know the feeling, like what, what their riders are feeling. So they've set it up that um, Beric knows They're that Isildur bonded. is alive. Very bonded. They're very yeah. bonded. Love that. I love that. I love the inclusion of that horse. Yeah. So they human. did a great job setting that re- horse relationship up as opposed to their non-setup of Galadriel. Yeah, like horse. we saw her once on horseback and she was ecstatic, like <laughs> like smiling ear to ear and then never again. Yeah. They're just like, mm, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was that was great. Uh, so I just, so we are yin and yang on this one. I love I didn't hate it though. We're not totally. Like, on. I think I'm less, you know, I, I, I we're not yin totally and yin and yang. We're yin and yang-ish. You know, it wasn't my favorite episode, but it definitely wasn't. I didn't hate it by any means. It was there yeah. were a lot of great things. So, I'm I'm so excited for the finale, though. I mean, season finale coming up, folks. Um, please, everybody, check out the recipes we have coming up for the season finale. You will not be disappointed. The we got a custom cocktail as always by Liquor and Lore that we will post. We got brand new artwork. Don't forget about our Sunday stream this Sunday, 11.45 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Um, and of course, you know, we're all gearing up for the very last episode of this show. And I, I can't believe it's almost over. I'm, I'm so sad, um, but I'm really excited to just. It's gone so fast. It went so fast. Um, I need more. I want more, my precious. But, you know, it's been such a fun ride and. um. Michael, I can't wait to, you know, chat about the the finale. I'm sure we'll have so much to talk about. And um, I hope everybody's also tuning into the Fellowship of Fans content because we are partnered with them. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we're going to do a season finale after party stream like we always do. But we're also going to do a full season wrap up stream after that. Um, And so be be sure to tune in. So we're going to do an extra week. And I'm really excited for that to look back at the entire season and so we're going to do that with fellowship of fans we're also going to do our own sort of hot takes season wrap up where we're going to go through our our sort of rubric for what makes a good adaptation going back to what episode 15 or 16 um through the lens of adaptation and the way we evaluate these things so we're going to do that just me and jen uh, i'm really excited to, to be able to take a minute really digest everything we've seen in the show and reflect on it and talk about it again i think that'll do it for us this week Remember to check out our other podcasts. We got a watch party of ice and fire. They're going strong with house of the dragon. Fantastic show. If you're into that type of storytelling, they're doing a great job of it. And then watch party, uh, wheel of time. They're on hiatus, but they'll be coming back shortly with new episodes for the preseason type of uh, content for wheel of time, which is gearing up again. So uh, check those out. And uh, we look forward to speaking with you again on Sunday. And then next week, may the hair on your toes never fall out. Thank you.